This book toes the line between supporting public education and advocating for change in traditional public schooling, which you believe perpetuates inequity for children. How can we enact this balance in both policy and practice? Well, I think that is something that Debbie has has been working for, you know, for her entire career, which is now 50 years, right, Deb? I think the important point we want to make is that we support the public aspect of education without equivocation. That is, we think, absolutely essential in a democracy. And, you know, that should be unquestioned. Um, And so the fact that it is being questioned, you know, whether or not our system needs to be public is, is very troubling to us. But as I mentioned, Deb has been a reformer for the last 50 years. Um, and so I think, you know, part of being a, a reformer for democracy and education means that you understand that there's always going to be dilemmas that you are grappling with, that there are always things that need to change. And so I think as long as that is in the forefront, that, that you're working for to strengthen democracy, and that's the purpose of education, that that's how you maintain that balance. I think that one of the dangers to democracy is the notion of it. This is a crisis, and solutions made to solve a crisis are very rarely good solutions. They may be necessary, but I'm very leery about, um, you know, uh, the climate that comes around when we call it a crisis, because uh, democratic change can't be sudden. Change comes through persuasion, and uh, persuasion is a long-term task. And that's why people sometimes get very impatient with democracy. I put up with the fact that it's going to take a lot of patience and persistence, and it's going to take a lot of other movements to change some of the qualities of American life. You can't have a very fulsome democracy when you have as much inequality as we have in America. Inequality uh, that provides some with an enormous amount of power and others with very little. So we have to tackle other forms of inequity, not just school inequity. I just would like to back up and say, you know, in terms of my personal experience that perhaps informs, you know, how we we discuss uh, the direction we would like to see schools go in, was I think started with my high school. I, I was lucky to be able to attend a alternative public high school in Rochester, New York called School Without Walls. Another model, it's still in existence. I think it's going, it's probably going to be 50 soon, I want to say. And it was there that I really got a sense of what school could be. And at School Without Walls, you know, it's a project-based curriculum. We did a, a senior project, and I had to pursue my own interests. That was a skill that I learned or relearned and to develop my own voice. And through that, I think, you know, I probably didn't, wasn't aware of it as a teenager, but I developed a sense of belonging to a community and a sense of having something to contribute to that community, like a sense of shaping that. But I think it was my experience working at Mission Hill School and, you know, being a, a staff member who was able to, to do that for students 
to be, you know, to create a culture like that. That made me realize what was happening, first of all, in my high school, but also that that's really that sense of belonging and that sense that you have something to contribute is really at the heart of democratic citizenship, right? And that is what is so important for schools to offer all students. You know, we, we have a simple solution that um, the society should offer all children what the wealthiest families offer their children. Right, and I think schools like Mission Hill really demonstrate that that's possible. Yeah, actually, that leads really well into my next question, which is the two of you first worked together at Mission Hill School in Boston in the 1990s. And you wrote in the book that these kinds of schools, which champion innovative democratic practices, are now in danger of disappearing. How can we, in effect, save them? We could uh, lessen the fixation on standardized testing, which does which is a phony system to start with. I mean, it's, it literally does not assess what it even claims to assess. They're not a good assessment of anything that's important intellectually, uh, and that yet they drive school curriculum um, and make people feel dumber. I mean, half the population has to be dumb in a standardized test because the test is scored as a rank order. Uh, half have to be below the median. But it drives with progressive schools also. It's hard to hold on to some of our innovative practices, like multi-age classrooms, like curriculum that um, goes across the grades, the whole school studies something together. All of those kinds of innovative practices, which we found to be so successful, uh, make uh, are not successful in terms of test scores. Right, and I would just add to that 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 the pressure is especially is especially debilitating in schools that serve students from low income backgrounds because they the tests are set up so that those students don't score as well and and so i you know I would just reiterate what Deb said that we really need to move in the direction that I think you know there's a lot of lip service at this point. I think there's pretty widespread acknowledgement that testing is, is inadequate at best. It doesn't help us get where we want to be with education. Oh, it's just frustrating because I went to a, a private school for mostly rich children in New York, and that school had been around since the late 19th century. It was hardly an experiment. It had for the time I was there, you know, um, 50, 60 years been uh, pr- producing uh, leaders of America, and uh, it was built around progressive educational ideas. And people would say to me when we started doing this in the public sector, they say, "Well, you're experimenting on those children." And I thought, uh, "No, I'm doing something that uh, has worked for wealthy people's children forever." <laughs> Well, also, that you're forgetting that that school was started to serve poor children, as most yeah. of those those models are. And Montessori was started for working-class children. Waldorf schools were started for working-class children. And so was your school. They were all started as models of what they thought good public education should be. And um, in the end, they found out that rich people were willing to pay a lot for it. So... Uh, 
that turned into schools for rich people. It's the will. There has to be the will to want to to make this shift um, so that that's not thought of as innovative anymore, so that it's not, you know, that we're experimenting on poor kids or that, you know, this is really innovative. It's really just good practice. That's what we're hoping for. And I think we need to have the will to, to look at the models that have worked. So, Deb, you've in the past been uh, an early supporter uh, for the charter school movement, but in the book you wrote that the charter and voucher-led versions that are now being pushed very strongly by the education department and other people fail to provide all students the kind of education traditionally reserved for the privileged few. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how both of your views on choice have evolved over time, especially after working in less traditional public schools. Choice has a lot of nice qualities to it, which is why we like schools to give children and teachers choices. But they, um, like anything else in a democracy, you have to balance it. Is uh, giving me choice prevents somebody else from having a choice? So choice can be complicated. That the market idea in the marketplace is that individuals making individual choices will produce the best results for the common good. And I think there are a great many people, um, still a, a substantial minority, I'm quite sure, in this country, who think that uh, democracy is a, is a poor system, really, and uh, the, that you can simply should get rid of all regulations and all rules and all requirements and let everyone do what they think is best for themselves, and that in the long run that will work out. And I, I think we have a lot of good reasons to know that that doesn't work. It works in some spheres. Um, I can in the classroom tell the children that they, uh, I've, even in the classroom, when I give children choices, after all, I have limited the choices in some ways by what I've put in the room. Um, they don't have a choice for running out in the street, and they don't have a choice to go to the classroom next door unless it's it's being pushed by people who have their own self-interest in in mind and not the common self-interest. I, I would just say that I think, you know, there's definitely a place for choice and there's something to be said for buying into a, a community. You know, I, choosing a school because it has an interesting focus that speaks to your, you know, you and your, your family, your child. There are states that I think have done a better job than others at creating guidelines and regulations that have made choice uh, less or more problematic. And there was just a, a article in the New York Times Magazine this past Sunday about Betsy DeVos's home state of Michigan and about how the lack of regulation there actually has, has really just... Uh, made communities that were already um, vulnerable and neglected uh, more, uh, more vulnerable um, and really have not served those communities well. And so that's, that's part of the problem with choice today is that we're sort of going full steam ahead with a, a policy that has really not uh, there hasn't been research that has borne out that it is really a, a sound reform in terms of creating equity or 
better education for, for students. You've both been in the education world for varying amounts of time and uh, both worked in a variety of school settings. So I'm curious, as education reformers from different generations, how does your relationship with one another influence your work? Uh, and then what's one lesson that you've gleaned from the other um, through your work together? I came to age, of age really in the 1980s, which now I see as sort of the beginning of this shift that we've now seen um, where democracy has really become conflated with, with market values and sort of the right of the individual to get ahead at any cost, you know. Um, and I think that I grew up, therefore, having sort of a pretty cynical view of this word anyway, the word democracy. It wasn't really part of my vocabulary, I don't think. Um, and so when I met Deb, it was when I started working at Mission Health School, and, you know, she was so passionate about democracy and used the word a lot. <laughs> um, and I was able to to actually live the, the daily practice of uh, being in a democratic community and modeling that for students. I think, you know, that has been uh, the biggest influence on me in terms of my relationship with them. My understanding now of what it means to be uh, a citizen in a democratic society, it has meaning now. And it's not something that has ever really been explicitly taught in schools, even though that is supposedly, you know, our, our foundation. And I grew up in the thirties and forties when uh, democracy was very much a current battle. And then, of course, World War II, which was a war for democracy. And so, and then <clears throat> by the time um, the next big wave of sort of democracy talk in the 60s came and when I was just beginning teaching. If you were an American, you believed in democracy. And if you were an American, you were passionate about it. And in some ways... Uh, our, the Cold War was also posed as a question of democracy. And in a strange way, uh, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism, which uh, has given us the luxury of assuming that um, democracy didn't need to be fought for. It, it was a survivor. And uh, we so I really think in an odd way we have no enemy <laughs> has made it harder to keep the idea of democracy alive. I noticed the chapters in the book are written in alternating voices uh, as a conversation addressing questions posed by one another. And I couldn't help but notice that the format mirrors that of the decades-long conversation that Deb had with various scholars on her edweek.org blog, Bridging Differences. And so I'm curious what made you decide to frame the book this way as an ongoing dialogue. Actually, it's interesting because we, there, there were three iterations of the book that that was our third. So the first two were very different. And the way that we came to this one was really through dialogue with our colleagues. People were interested, first of all, in the intergenerational aspect of it. And so we were trying to think about how to, to bring that into the forefront. Um, and then I think we just realized that 
discussion, conversation is so central to sort of, it's one of the main structures that we have in place at Mission Hill to ensure that everyone has a voice. There are, you know, several forums for teachers to, to meet together regularly. And then there are also forums where we invite families in and, and the community in and other members of the, the school community um, that that is open. And so it just came to us that that made sense. Is there uh, anything else that you think would be important to mention or add that you think we miss? Some of the divide between the right and the left at the present time is um, very deep-rooted, but uh, some of it is somewhat artificial. For example, I I think it's um, the left is not uh, pro-centralization for its own sake. There is a kind of, um, there may be a kind of totalitarian left that is. If people are to have a voice, that's why we fought it for small schools. You, you want to make it as easy as possible for people to have a voice and to learn to influence their world. And that uh, means that you want to increase face-to-face relationships and local decision-making and context matters. When people ask me, what would you do about this? I'm, I'd say, it depends. And that attitude, it depends. It depends on the particulars of the environment and the setting. I, I think is a value that could be shared across what we call the right and the left and that uh, there is enormous value in small, local uh, community life. And we're losing that in America. Um, You know, they're not... Labor unions were an example of that. Small towns were, neighborhood schools were, the Elks. There were a lot of places where uh, human beings, and I'm slightly... This is slightly romanticizing it, but... Uh, there were more places where at least white men felt that their voices were heard. We've expanded <laughs> our notion of citizens to include women and people of color, uh, but we haven't kept, held on to the, the importance of people having communities where they can be heard and can have an influence. And I think that's shared. That's, that's part of what I think uh, is shared across political lines. Mm-hmm. And I think, Deb, something that you have mentioned to me is another fear with choice is that people are choosing to be with other people that are very similar to themselves and that we're losing that kind of diversity in schools, even among, you know, in schools that <laughs> seem like they're a little more um, diverse in terms of race but they're not in terms of class or, you know, beliefs. You both asked the question in your book, how can we hope to educate for democracy if children and the adults in their lives never have the opportunity to observe or practice it? So I'm curious what you would say to teachers and school leaders who are currently in the classroom, you know, in what ways can they uh, work within the existing system to experiment and personalize education for students? If it's such a wonderful idea, democracy, um, why don't at least the adults who make up this school uh, operate democratically? Why don't we provide the time, space, so that students can witness it and over time can uh, become more and more a part of it as they grow older, so that by the time they 
graduated 18 and have a right to be um, citizens, are full citizens and have a right to vote, they have had a long apprenticeship in what it means to be a citizen. Why aren't our schools dem democracies? And I, a lot of that could take place just by local agreement. And I think we can have a lot of minor rebellions, you know, where teachers just say, I want to be treated like an adult human being. This is my field. This is my expertise. And parents are also, <laughs> they're experts on their children and on, on their communities. I think that there needs to be um, more of a push from teachers. There's two wonderful teacher groups that have started in D.C. that I'm very hopeful about. Um, one is called Empower Ed, and it's teachers from very different settings across the city who are getting together to talk about how to create more democratic conditions in their respective schools. Um, so that's very helpful, and I, I think that that's, the, that's what gives me hope, <laughs> that if there are more groups like that, the other one is started by an organization called Teaching for Change here in D.C., and I know those kinds of groups exist uh, nationally. But I think it has to be grassroots, and we have to push uh, our, the people who are actually making the decisions to want to make these bold moves towards uh, education that really um, does reflect the kinds of values that we, we say we hold. 